you crying at the end, that one, doesn't it? No, <laughs> it doesn't. No Good comment. Morning. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning. Slightly better than last week, so <laughs> things are improving a little bit. John Travolta, of course, from the film Grease. Yes. Many, Remember, many years ago. John Sunday. Travolta famously described by one film critic as the cockroach of actors, because it doesn't matter how many bad things happen, he always comes back. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, I, I did like that film. I no, think. I like Grease. I'm just not as big a fan of it as you are. <laughs> Great. How are you? I'm... A, as you can probably tell, a bit sort of sleepy and dishevelled, but I'm okay. Good, good. Yes. You've been all round the place this week, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I had, uh, well, Barnsley was last, sorry, Bexley yeah. was last week, then I had an interview in York on Tuesday and then Barnsley on Thursday, so I have been around just a little bit. Yes, if you want to follow Daniel's travels, I'm on a Facebook near to you. <laughs> I, I should just have a little map saying all the places that I've been to and, yeah, you know, turn it into a sort of mini Michael Palin. Right. Well, there are a few films coming up at Annick this week, so this is this is the mystery quiz to uh, quick reviews. <laughs> um, on uh, Monday afternoon, four thirty, it is a Turtle's Tale: Sammy's Adventures. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. But it it's, is at four thirty. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I think you'd be better off, better off, honestly, getting Finding Nemo out on DVD. But I suppose if you've got nothing else to do. Anyway, one we can both rave about. Friday night, seven thirty. It is the Eagle coming yeah. to Annick. Yeah, you're finally going to see it, are you? Yeah. Uh, yes, I think so. I think we might just be there. And then Saturday night, Submarine. Yeah, that's a very interesting film that I didn't get the chance to see in cinemas, but I'll I'll probably be at that screening because I need to catch it. Great. Good. So that's uh, Annick Playhouse. Meanwhile, at the Tyneside Cinema. Yes, if you're wanting to travel slightly further, um, the Tyneside Cinema are 75 years old this year. And yes. to celebrate that, they are doing 75 hours of non-stop film over this weekend. And each film screening is 75 pence a ticket. What good value. Yes. Um, do you want me to sort of rattle through all the Why stuff not? that they're showing? I mean, you can find all the sort of times of when all these films are showing on their website because they're staggering them over three screens and the bar is open all night uh, but starting from 10pm tonight they're showing and deep breath The Shining Peeping Tom the original version of King Kong Edward Scissorhands Faster Pussycat Kill Kill Harold and Maud Planet of the Apes The Original Cat People Old Boy Pink Flamingos The Wizard of Oz Rashomon Sunset Boulevard A Night at the Opera Toy Story 3 in 3D Citizen Kane Monty Python's Life of Brian The Battle of Algiers Raiders of the Lost Ark Buena Vista Social Club The Spirit of the Beehive The Cook the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, City of God, My Beautiful Laundrette, The Godfather, The Piano and Wings of Desire. That was very well done. <laughs> <laughs> shall, I, shall I talk for a bit, let you catch your <laughs> breath after that? I should have brought some water in. No, yes. but, but that is a wonderful mix of films. Yeah, I mean, the I'll, original King Kong. Yeah, which yes. still looks, I mean, as, an, as something which looks so kind of ropey in terms of its effect, it's surprised how well the rest of it holds up. Yeah, great film. Have you seen the 70s version of King Kong? The yes, one so I don't think maligned. it was as good as the original. No. No. But the Peter Jackson version, obviously, is, is fantastic. Yes. So, I mean, out of those, well, you can take your pick, pretty much. I mean, I'm going to go and see Peeping Tom on the big screen, you know, the great Michael Powell film that was, yeah. that effectively was outlawed when he was released, but I actually think it's a better film than Psycho. I know that's yeah. controversial, but Michael Powell is an amazing director. Um, seeing Edward Scissorhands on the big screen will be very good, because that... That was a good film, yes. I think it's one of Tim Burton's very best, but it's, and also, of course, the last ever performance by Vincent Price, who's in it very briefly. Yeah. Um... The Shining would be very good. Obviously, that's well. That's not sort of that's a good one to sort of start off the evening, get yourself <laughs> nicely chilled. Um, so yeah, the ones I'm going to be seeing are Peeping Tom, Harold and Maud, the great sort of Hal Ashby film, which yeah. is about you know, a young kid who's obsessed with death and he falls in love with an elderly woman, and Wings of Desire. So you'd be even more sleepy tomorrow then, won't you? No, because I'm going to. I have well, we'll work on that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Shall we have a look what's at the charts? Yeah, sometimes? I think we should. 
Not a lot's changed, actually, really, has there? When you look at the week-on-week chart, uh, comparisons. Yeah, sort of so. one in, one out. Yes. Up, uh, down number one to number ten is Arthur. Which isn't as good as the original. I think that Russell Brand is slightly funnier here than he has been before, but he still doesn't have any of the sort of the brio or the charm of Dudley Moore's performance, and I think the female characters in this come off a little worse. Right. Down one to number nine is Priest. Which is surprisingly dull. I mean, we're both fans of Paul Bettany, as yeah. I think we discussed a couple of weeks ago. And Legion, the film that this was preceded by, was quite good, stupid fun. I mean, it, like I say, it was totally bonkers, but it, you could sort of enjoy it in an empty-headed way. This is just another case of effects over emotion, I'm afraid. So, right. it's a disappointment. Right. Next one, my script is wrong, so you'll have to fill in this. <laughs> yeah, we, we both got this a little bit wrong, because we... The box office top ten sources that we use listed this as the company men, which you've been, if you've been following this show for a while, came out two months ago, which would have, no, I mean, I think from the way we reviewed that film, it wouldn't have been so bad had it gone in at number eight, but it's actually wrong. Um, it's Something Borrowed, which is the latest Kate Hudson rom-com, and it's just like all the other Kate Hudson rom-coms, it's totally disposable candy floss and a bit rubbish. Okay, staying at number... You wanted me to fill in the gaps, yes. you had to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> staying at number seven is Rio. Which is done better than I think most people anticipated, even sort of um, the guys who made it themselves. It's it's perfectly okay, it didn't need to be in 3D, but the animation's nice, and um, Jesse Eisenberg doing his social network shtick, which he needs to get out of, but it's uh, it's okay for what it is. Down two from four to six, Water for Elephants. Which, again, is okay. I mean, it's, like I said last week, it's a sort of old-fashioned melodrama which harks back to the great sort of work of the 50s, N not the sort of the darker end of melodrama like Douglas Sirk and Billy Wilder, that sort of thing, but more sort of like... Well, it's dangerous to compare anything with Gone with the Wind, quite apart from how overrated that film is. I think that if you're a fan of, no. 50s melodrama, then you'll kind of sit there thinking, this is a really kind of affectionate throwback to the way cinema used to be. Yeah. But if you're someone sort of my age who hasn't grown up on Elizabeth Taylor and, you know, um, and Vivian Lee, you will sit there being a bit bored. I see. Fair yeah. Where do you stand on Gone with the Wind? Oh, it's a great film. Great, super, brilliant film. And miles too long, don't you think? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that doesn't dent its greatness for yeah, you. But why, why waste a few miles of good reel? <laughs> well, why waste a few hundred miles of good landscape? Yes. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, not only do I used to like film, but then, of course, I went to uh, live in Atlanta, where it was all shot. And, oh, yes, okay. uh, And you couldn't go in any museum without that theme tune being on in the background. Yes. So, uh, yes, they, that city knew how to milk its assets. <laughs> <laughs> there was that, there was Coca-Cola and the Olympics. <laughs> well, okay, I mean, I... I, th I think Gone with the Wind's okay, that's what yeah. I'm getting at. I, mean, yeah. I think it is too long, and I think Vivian Lee's incredibly annoying, but it's okay. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> number five, no move for Hannah. Which is Joe Wright's best film, with another great performance by Saoirse Ronan, who is rapidly turning into one of my favourite actresses. Um, like all Joe Wright's work, it is, it is uneven, because it's a sort of mix of fairy tale with action-adventure and sort of man-on-the-run thrillers. But it's... If nothing else, it's better because it's a lot less sort of ponderous and painterly than a lot of his literary adaptations, which have felt like sort of heritage filmmaking. And, uh, yeah, so it's his best film, and Saoirse Ronan's terrific. Great, good. Down one place to number four for Insidious. Which isn't scary. I mean, you have to admire the fact that they've managed to make something that looks that professional for so little money, because I think it only had a budget of $1 million. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, obviously that doesn't include the money used yeah. to sell it, because it gets picked up by studios and they do the marketing. But again, the problem is that it isn't scary, and you will spend most of your time thinking, why aren't I watching The Omen? The original version of The Omen, of course, which is a really great film. Okay. 
Well, this week's highest new entry, number three, Attack the Block. Yeah, we, uh, this was sort of conditional film of the week last week. Yes, um, indeed, anyone... I remember, yes. Yeah. Um, I think, I like it. I think Joe Cornish is an interesting director. It's a sort of affectionate throwback to sort of 70s and 80s sci-fi with a very modern setting. I think the young performers are capable. If I have a reservation, it's that I'm not sure it's either scary or fun enough to pass mustard as a sort of first-rate horror comedy. Yeah. But then again, it wasn't designed to be like Shaun of the Dead or American Werewolf. So I think, you know, perhaps an open mind on that is, is more is more needed. And then the top two unchanged, I think Alan Freeman every week goes by. Uh, fast Five at number two. Oh, it is what it is. I mean, it's, it's empty and unnecessary but it's passingly entertaining. Right. And quickly on to number one this week, Thor again. Which I like, although it is utterly mad. I think that Kenneth Branagh does a very good job with what is frankly absurdist material because no it, it's a it's a marvel comic book so it's not it's not sort of a grand weighty tome and there is always amounts of ridiculousness i think you know there's some question about whether your opinion of kenneth branner and his back cutler will affect your enjoyment of it like i said last week if you're someone who got frankenstein the first time round, then yeah. you will kind of you'll understand where he's going and you'll understand how good branner is at doing sort of comedy and overwrought drama whereas if you're someone who found frankenstein just a bit over the top which it wasn't then you then you will kind of find yourself a bit frustrated i mean i've read very polar reviews of thor um on rotten tomatoes some people saying they thought it was you no know, shamelessly empty and shallow other people said it was the greatest thing they've seen all year right take your pick yeah i mean i i would tend towards the latter because i do think that frankenstein i remember seeing that in year 10 history when we were doing the medical medical history and um just remembering kenneth Branagh sort of running around with his shirt off and it was it was a bit ridiculous granted but it was it got the sort of the gothic romance heart of all those sort of 18th and 19th century victorian novels which is sort of repressed emotion coming out in really extraordinary ways and you no know, the character of frankenstein it's very appropriate to have him as a sort of colin firth of his day great so pick of the week it looks like thor attack the block and hannah yeah, and uh, Water for Elephants conditionally, but yeah, those three uh, are definite choices. Okay, cult film this week is going to be The Clonus Horror. Shall we talk about that after some music? Why not? From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. LMFAO number two this week, and Party Rock, our cult film this week. Uh, it takes us back to 1979, low-budget film, The Clonus Horror. And I was trying to remember, Daniel, if I'd actually seen this film or not, and I think I've reached the conclusion I didn't. Right. But, uh, I did see it's uh, a, The Island a few years later, which is not completely uh, out of the conversation here, is yeah, it? Yeah, it isn't. I mean, we'll, we'll start with, with this various bit of litigation in the setup. So, The Clonus Horror, it's a 1979 B-movie which goes under various titles. It's either The Clonus Horror or Clonus or Parts or Parts The Clonus Horror, depending upon which region it was released in. Directed by Robert S. Fiveson, and you probably haven't heard of him because this is actually the only film he ever made. Right. Um, but he, But <laughs> he was in the news, like I say, in 2005 because there was a Michael Bay film called The Island, which was this sort of romping, meat-headed film about, you know, uh, clones on an island with Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson that got a kicking because it had product placement in pretty much every scene. And Robert S. Fiveson basically sued Michael Bay and DreamWorks for an undisclosed amount for essentially unofficially remaking his film without permission, because, you know, if, you, if you've seen The Island and The Clone of Sorrow, the similarities are quite naked. Right. So, um, yeah, so there was a sort of undisclosed amount of that, and this film is kind of 
Which, I mean, in a way, the case was a good thing because it brought this film a bit more profile, but on the other hand, it's a rather sad indictment of the way that Hollywood sort of unashamedly rips off perfectly interesting if little seen films. So do I take it um, the rip-off was distinctly worse than the original? Because I did not like The Island. Uh... No, The Island is... I mean, all Michael Bay stuff is terrible, let's make that perfectly clear. I mean, The, the Island is... The Island is essentially what you would happen if you took the Clonus Horror and made it with 50 times as much money and then took the ideas out. Because right. it's just it's just empty, vacuous nonsense. Right. And we've got Transformers 3 coming out this summer, yes. which is I'm really dreading. But anyway... Well, um, before we have to go off and consult with our lawyers, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about uh, the Clonus Horror. Yeah, so um, it was made for about $250,000, which so we're talking about sort of Dark Star territory, although unlike Dark Star, it doesn't get around the limitations of its budget so well as will become clear. The only notable cast member is Peter Graves, who you'd probably know best as the original Mr. Phelps from Mission Impossible. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, a year after this, he was in Airplane, of course, playing yes, Captain Irvin. That, that sort of yes. brought him to a whole new audience. Yes. Although apparently he almost turned down that role because he read the Zucker Brothers script and said, I can't do this, this is tasteless trash. <laughs> Which <laughs> he was. Well, <laughs> it, it was tasteless, but it definitely wasn't trash and still... Rip-roaringly funny, every yes, single gag that hits mind. So, it's very difficult to, to sort of explain the plot of the Clonus horror without giving away the twist, although, considering the word Clonus is in the title, that should tell you pretty much all you need sort to know. get the hang of it. Yeah, yes. we, we can sort of, let's get beyond that. So, if you don't want to know what happens, you're effectively going to have to turn off for 20 minutes. Please yes. don't, because there's lots of interesting things to say, but, you know, yeah. don't come crying to us for spoiling the film. So the story is there are a group of people at a training facility called Clonus, which is a scientific community in the desert, closed off from the outside world, and we follow these people as they're in training, both physically and mentally, to go to America, which is, you know, built as this great kind of fantastical land, and as soon as these people are ready, they're going to leave the group, and we follow this one man called Richard, who's played by Tim Donnelly, who, one of his friends has gone to America, but he's kind of, he's not sure whether he's ready enough or whether he wants to go, so at what night when everyone else is sleeping he breaks into the complex which is known as america only to discover that he is actually a clone which is being bred for sinister scientific purposes and he manages to escape to the real america because it's actually in the desert in utah or something like that and he has to find out what's going on and expose the scientists involved with the help of a journalist yeah now then um when you hear the word b movie what generally comes to your mind um, <clears throat> well, they were usually, back in the days when you used to have support acts. And, yes. Um, you would, uh, you'd have the news, <laughs> and then you'd have some adverts, and then, and you'd have the B-movie, and then somebody would come on with the ice creams, and then you'd get what you went to see in the first place. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, because, how long ago did Double Bills actually finish? Because they were still oh, doing them in the 70s, weren't I they? I was probably about two at the time. No, I think it probably was the sort of 70s they started dying out. Yeah, I suppose because yeah. of, you know, Jaws and Star Wars yes. creating, uh, but that's a different story. But nowadays, now that we don't have, like you said, a theatrical Double Bill, including the news or no footage and that sort of thing, the term B-movie has kind of become like a derogatory shorthand for sort of dismissing a film's production value. Say, oh, it's a B-movie. Yes. But Ronald Reagan. Yes. Ronald Reagan. The classic B-movie actor, wasn't he? Oh, of course, because that, there's that great um, spitting image sketch with um, him and Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher's trying to explain what communists are to him, and he says, you know, uh, can we go back a bit further? He says, how much further? Well, I remember making that film about a monkey, but the rest is all a bit of a blur. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, so... But I think calling the Clonosaur a B-movie in that way, in sort of derogatory way, kind of under... It neglects the fact that 
on the one hand, B-movies do have a certain ropey charm. I mean, you know that they're sort of rough around the edges and made for not very much, but they have sort of, you know, a sort of affectionate idea to them. And also the fact that a lot of B-movies, including this, are actually more interesting and edgy in their, the ideas they explore than a lot of their mainstream films. Yeah, and it's, because they were lower budget and there wasn't quite the hype and expectation. Yeah, and because they weren't sort of, because they didn't have sort of great stars running around on them, there wasn't as much sort of risk commercially, so that they could sort of, because they were only going to be around for a few weeks, weeks, like the drive-in movies, which were designed yeah. to sort of play for two weeks and then a lot of them just got destroyed, you could sort of get, well, not get away with murder, but you could sort of explore stuff that was darker yeah. and edgy and get away with it, because even if the censors were quite strict, you'd still get an audience through sort of midnight screenings and so yes. forth. Yeah. So, it's, as a kind of general summary, it's, it's part of that um, 1970s low-budget wave of dystopian science fiction, which, you know, is, is very sort of broad-rainy, but there are, there are sort of elements that it takes from a few of the more well-known ones. So there are, first off, big overturns of Soylent Green, um, in the sense that there is, it's a future in which mankind is in one form or another feeding on itself, and the idea of shrouding the modern equivalence of, let's face it, cannibalism in both sort of the veil of scientific endeavour and an appeal to old-fashioned values, which is, you know, kind of what Silent Green was talking about. You remember the uh, the heaven sequence in Silent Green where Edward G. Robinson yeah. is... Um, yeah. Uh, is dying and they're, they're showing sort of pictures of all the meadows saying oh it's wonderful wonderful and then charlton heston discovers the famous twist which we won't give away even though everyone knows it um there are also things and uh, i mean uh, like the boys from brazil i suppose the great sort of the ira 11 adaptation with um you know gregory peck hamming for all his worth because there are sort of the political connotations of cloning in there and it's you no know, cloning for malicious purposes albeit not with nazis involved that would be sort of one step too far and then there are little nods to things like 1984 and the nature of the compound and there's a reference to george lucas's first film thx 1138 in the sense that all the clones have these sort of ear tags they're sort of like pierced earlobes, but no that's that's yep. a, a motif that lucas used in that film which is quite a little scene nowadays and he's sort of taken to making fun of it but it's probably one of his better works the closest comparison however if you want to sort of do a comparative history of this film is with the setford wives which i presume you've seen yes yes, yes. obviously the original version which yeah. is again depressing but you know brian forbes film from 1975 again adapted from ira 11 who was sort of on a roll at that point and really really creepy film yeah um so it's a, comp a close comparison because you have clones which are sort of, they're conceived as perfect specimens of men and women, both physically and mentally, and they're sort of regularly tested to sort of instill them with the values. The difference is that, whereas in the Stepford Wives, the clones are created to sort of sexually satisfy the men and be completely brainless. In this, it's, you know, kind of people who go all sort of wide-eyed at the mention of America, sort of building a, a, nat a nation of physically perfect patriots, yes. so to speak. And as a bonus of that, the fact that you kind of, you get that sort of stilted delivery early on, it means that you can sort of forgive the more wooden bits of the acting, because you think, well, they're clones, would they know to how to speak properly anyway? So you can sort of yeah. get over that flaw quite quickly. Unfortunately, there's a lot of other flaws which are not quite so easy to ignore, um, and I'll sort of canter through them as quickly as I can, because I want to get to the good things about the film, but I think in order to do the film justice, we need to mention them. Um, like a lot of B-movies, there are very low production values. Um, there was a story about... Gregory's Girl, the, the Bill Forsyth film from the early 80s, um, that they had so little money making that, that all the actors had to bring their own clothes. Um, then so that's, that's yeah, why but in that film it sort of worked, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did work, and I like Gregory's Girl very much, don't get me wrong. I mean, there, there is a sort of history of that. I mean, we were talking about Mad Max and the fact that in because they had so little money, only Mel Gibson's wearing leather and everyone yeah. else is wearing vinyl, so sort of, you know, which is probably okay, because if you're in the middle of the Australian ne desert, you don't want to be sort of in something which is sort of thick and bulky. 
So you have the sort of people wearing their own clothes, which sort of works, but then you have the fact that the film is shot on very low-quality stock, so it is sort of grainy and jumpy yeah. and scratchy. And there's lots of exterior shooting, which was presumably sort of to save time and money on interior setups, because it's quite difficult to sort of light an interior scene if you've not got no proper lighting and proper yeah. sound equipment and so forth. Um, as a result of shooting on this low-quality stock, you have a number of other visual shortcomings. I mean, shooting in exterior light is good on the one hand because, it, like I say, it does save time and money. But on the other hand, there's all sorts of various continuity issues that come with it. I mean, you're kind of, you're kind of in this film, you'll be in sort of afternoon one section, and then the next scene it'll be evening, and it'll keep cutting back and forth because someone hasn't timed or color corrected the film properly. And there is a lot of lens flare, which is you know where, the, where you get the sun sort of reflecting and you get the rings on it, which yeah. has been some films use that artistically, like Full Metal Jacket, you know the sequence with the, with the, the flashlight, which yeah. works. But there's there are, just because they didn't have the money. Yeah, I mean you can't really get rid of those by CGI or anything like that. Yeah. And bear in mind this is the 70s, so no, this was pre-Tron, so CGI yeah. was still in its infancy. It's, there are also things like, I mean, Robert Fiveson is not a brilliant director insofar as the way he composes certain scenes is rather ramshackle to the point of being unintentionally hilarious. There's a sequence where um, Richard and his sort of girlfriend, so to speak, they're sitting in front of a campfire discussing about um, how America's going to be. And it's shot from uh, at their backs with the sort of fire behind them. But he shot it so that it looks like there's smoke coming out of the woman's backside. <laughs> so, you know, just you thought you thought you might have spotted that. Yes, it's indeed. Sort of unintentionally yeah. funny. And then you get all the sort of 70s stuff about, you know, there's the gratuitous sex scene, there's shots of women running around in short shorts, there's a couple of women that have got big chests, you know, all the sort of slightly leering end of 70s yeah. cinema, which unfortunately we have to put up with. Um, then you get into the sort of the narrative problems once you get over the visual difficulties, because you can adjust to them. You can be aware of them, but sort of get used to them very quickly, yeah. if you see what I mean. Um, so there are various sort of contrivances in the story. I mean, we sort of, you buy the idea of Richard sort of breaking into the complex known as America to find out what's going on. But then the film kind of cuts to all these shots of sort of CCTV and all these kind of computer screens of people monitoring what's going on. And you think, okay, he's being observed. So how is he able to read an entire fighting tablet's worth of information and watch a promotional film about <laughs> the Clonus project? Yeah. I mean, that is the very sort of, that's the Basil exposition moment where they yeah. tell you what's going on. But even so, it's a bit unbelievable. And there's also the thing about, you know, Richard goes out into the real world and the first person he finds just happens to be a really friendly journalist who really wants to help him find out what's going on. Yeah, As a journalist are all like that. Yes, as opposed to some, well, for instance, a mugger, which would be yes. more realistic even for the 70s. As you can probably gather, the film is frequently silly. I mean, it even sort of, it is in the manner of Boys from Brazil in the sense that it's trying to have a serious punch on one level, but whether because of its dating badly or just the way it's made, it's a bit sort of, you can't help laughing at certain points. Um, I mean, again, there are things like bad continuity. There's one sequence where Richard is limping down a street, having just been shot in the shoulder by this, this sort of security guard who's after him. And then the very next scene, it cuts to him escaping from this guard who's on a motorbike, but he's riding full pelt on a child's bicycle. <laughs> Yes, and he kind of goes Lovely. over the bridge, kind of pedalling like, you know, like the kids in E.T., and he's not quite as good. And then you have the conversations with, um, there's the retired journalist and his wife who sort of kind of bicker all the time. And it, the conversations are almost worthy of Dark Star, in the sense that you can almost imagine, this is what Sergeant Pinback would have been like had he actually got back to Earth. <laughs> and there is, not to give too much away, because it is one of the best jokes in the film, um, those two characters meet a rather sticky end. And you kind of expect, okay, they're going to be sort of bumped off. But no, they're having a conversation, and suddenly the whole house blows up. For no apparent reason. <laughs> so, 
Then you get the, the final sort of flawback, which is, I mean, the story is quite televisual. I mean, that's not just because of the, the low quality visuals, but the story is so sort of slim that you could have handled it in as like a Twilight Zone episode, yeah. because it is that sort of thing of one idea, play it through to the fullest and they'll kind yeah. of have a social message underneath. Um, there are also kind of the televisual feel comes from the fact that there are so many sort of small screens on no screen like you know the banks of computers and so forth and the fact that there are hints of the work of jerry anderson right down to the fact that the the training officers wear drop down microphones like the ones out of captain scarlet <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, i mean so everything i've said so far would kind of lead you to think oh it's a bit rubbish but the, what i want to say is that for all the things that are wrong with the Clonus Horror in terms of the way it's executed and the way it's contrived and the way that it is, frankly, a bit silly, it's sustained by the fact that it has a series of interesting ideas and it has a rigid commitment to them. I mean, it is the embodiment of substance over style as opposed to the other way yeah. around. And like we pointed out at the start, it, it, is an it has had some influence in the sense that it was one of the first films, along with The Boys from Brazil, in, which was much more upmarket, to explore the, the possibilities of cloning, which then yeah. leads us on to the island. And then subsequently there was a film called Never Let Me Go, which came out around Christmas time. Very little scene, but sort of interesting exploration of that. This is sort of the kind of the film's commitment to its ideas is sort of demonstrated by the fact that the title is a bit misleading. I mean, it's an 18 certificate film, although it was sort of downgraded to a 15 in some territories. But you'll be pleased to know there's actually very little horror in terms of either stuff that's gory or stuff that's yeah. sort of creepy and chilling. I mean, there is. There is one sequence called the lobotomy sequence in which there is a little bit of theatrical blood uh, and there is um, a sequence of a clone screaming as he's sort of wrapped in plastic on the operating table. But otherwise it's less the clonus horror as the clonus mystery because it's more about sort of yeah. what's going yeah. on and what does it all mean. The creepiest scene in the film is where, it's quite early on actually, where Richard is kind of, he's broken into America and he's found his way into this underground chamber which is like a freezer and he wanders along these, these kind of aisles of clones, dead clones, wrapped in sort of plastic, ready to be kind of, you know, taken away and, well, yeah. we'll tell you that in a second. And it's, it's a, I mean, that is a sort of nod to Stepford Wives in the way, because the ending sequence where the lead lady meets the clone that's been made of her. But also, I mean, if you've seen um, Steven Spielberg's AI, do you remember the sequence in that when um, David, the young boy, kind of walks along and sees hundreds of versions of himself all, oh, in, yes, bo all yeah. in boxes ready to go? Yes. So it's that sort of sense of, yeah. not just, I'm not alone, but what the hell is going on? Yeah. So the central idea of the clonus horror is that you have people being cloned, often against their will, not sort of to be experimented on, but to provide a, basically a steady supply of replacement organs so that the political elite can live forever. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you think... Which had a sort of direct political connotation, because if you think back, this was around the time of the famous Frost-Nixon interviews. Yeah. And in the same way that John Carpenter's Escape from New York was originally written as a sort of indictment of Nixon, because it was the idea of a criminal saving a president by breaking into, a, into a, effectively a maximum security prison. Um, in the same way, it's the idea of Nixon was using the interviews to sort of rehabilitate himself yeah. politically, or try to. Obviously, David Frost pulled one over on him at the end, and rightly so. Um, but there was, it's, you know, the whole idea of you, of the organs standing in for something else, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so you have 
this kind of idea of organ harvesting, you, you satirize the concept of the American dream because you're equating America with essentially ordinary people unknowingly giving up their lives to serve the rich and powerful, which is <laughs> quite an indictment of America. And unlike Soylent Green, in which all the sort of the beneficiaries of the scheme are, are pretty faceless because it's just handouts in the street, yeah. in this you have a very public beneficiary in the shape of Peter Graves who is running for the presidency and he does carry himself like an elderly JFK. I mean, he's got the sort of the pinball smile and the, and the perfect sort of side-parting haircut and no, it, it, it's quite a creepy performance so the film sort of goes into the ethics of cloning in the sense that there, there are conversations between peter graves and um a scientist about you know is it ethical to sort of make people live forever and use clones for that and there's all sorts of discussions about are clones human just because they have free will and so forth there's a a, a conversation which peter graves has saying you know Organ harvesting is great because, you know, you know, wouldn't it be great if someone like Gandhi could live forever? What if we could make all these great leaders carry on doing good? And the scientist says, okay, do you want Hitler and Stalin to live forever? Indeed, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. And, I mean, you can see foreshadowings of Blade Runner in some of this because it is the whole idea of whether it's clones or replicants, are capable of intelligence of free will, yeah. but they're seen, still seen as effectively meat markets, as yeah. things to be harvested and used and then thrown away when they're no longer useful. Within that, the film kind of tackles a couple of subsidiary ideas, which you no know, might seem quite standard now, but actually at the time were probably quite radical. Um, there's a sequence in the film where the clones go to confession, which is where they kind of line up outside what looks like a phone box, but it's a sort of computer booth, and they ask questions to a computer about things they don't understand, and the computer sort of gives responses which are very finely tuned to sort of reassure them and keep them in the dark, yeah. and it's sort of the idea that organised religion is something which inherently uses ignorance to manipulate or ordinary people, which, you know, is, is fairly standard in terms of, you yeah. know, it, you, that's been explored in lots of films, but this was one of the first to sort of do it in that sort of science fiction way. And in a similar way, you have the sort of the legions of doctors who sort of monitor the clones very closely and the clones sort of obey their their judgments without much yeah. question. So it's it's about the privileged position of medicine in society and the fact that, I mean, there's a big argument from a sort of historical point of view that priests, that sort of doctors are the new priests because they're the ones whose judgment is not questioned. Yeah. yeah. So... To sum up, it's a good example of a film that works mainly, if not solely, because it has the strength of its convictions. I mean, for all the things that are wrong with it, and as I think I've mentioned, there is an awful lot, the ideas are interesting and intriguing enough to just about carry it through 90 minutes. I mean, if it had been even slightly longer, I think you would have sort of got out of it. It's not Blade Runner, and it's not The Stepford Wives, it's not even The Boys from Brazil, which I, do, which I was watching again recently, but in its constant commitment to its core ideas it is just about more than the sum of its parts no right. pun intended good and of course with b movies you didn't expect anything yeah so you went along not expecting and if you got something like that you'd have enjoyed it so. yeah absolutely oh and that mention of gregory's girl d hepburn mm. oh. this is the fresh sound for the district live, live from, from Alec. this is lionheart radio and you know, I'm still thinking about Dee Hepburn. <laughs> yeah, she went. I think she went on to Crossroads after that. Something like that. Claire yes. Grogan's in the film as well, isn't it? And she was famously Kachansky in the original series of Red Dwarf. Indeed, yes, yeah. yes. And we may just we may just end up with an altered images track. That mean, uh, yeah, that would be very nice. Or should we just lie on the ground and pretend that we're sort of running so that the yes, world doesn't fall off? Indeed, if yes. you've seen the film, you know what we're talking yes, about. I do. I do remember falling in love with her, Dee yeah. Hepburn. Anyway, yeah. enough enough of such things. Enough of your private life. Next week, we are going to do Halloween. Yes, John Carpenter, um, slightly more well-known than The Clonus Horror, but made for equally less money and one of the greatest slasher movies ever made. Great. So, yeah, 
Right. You're sort of looking at me in an odd way, as like <laughs> when I said it was a slashy, it's like you're not looking forward <laughs> to it now. <laughs> we can do the thing instead if you want. No, 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 no. I, uh, I do remember Halloween. Okay. So, uh, right. right. And uh, one quick tribute we need to make. Yeah, um, just to just not to put a damper on things, but if you're um, a fan of the original version of Sherlock Holmes, the 80s version of Sherlock Holmes uh, from, with Jeremy Brett from the 1980s, you'll be saddened this week by the fact that uh, Edward Hardwick, the guy who played Watson, sadly passed away. And I think he was sort of 78, something like that, so he'd had a good innings and very, very accomplished actor. And I'm, I would suggest that if you want to pay tribute, either go and get the box set of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, um, particularly the episodes with Eric Porter playing Moriarty, which are very good. But if you want something more cinematic, go and get Shadowlands on DVD, because he plays Warney opposite Anthony Hopkins, and that is one of his finest performances. That sounds good. Yes. Yeah. Right. This week's new releases. Shall we start with uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 97? <laughs> Very good. Yeah, um, we're now into summer blockbuster season. I mean, do you have a, a kind of rough understanding of how the film calendar works in terms of which films sort of get released when? Uh, not, not particularly good. Okay. I mean, I've won. You get blockbusters in the summer and Christmas, but yes. Yeah, I mean, basically the way that it works out is that you have... In terms of calendar year, you have the first sort of two or three months, which is the Oscar-worthy stuff, the films yeah. that have sort of played briefly in America in 2010 and come over here and get all the attention. Yeah. After the awards season finishes in sort of late February, early March, you get the ones that are sort of didn't quite make it through to the shortlist, are sort of pushed out, and it's yeah. a bit sort of, you know, bit meh, to be honest. Then you get the summer blockbuster season, which is anything from, well, May to the end of September sometimes. Then you get more sort of interesting arty films in the, the, the autumn period and then Christmas and then you're back into the awards yeah. season. I mean, it's no, there's no point being sort of snobbish about blockbusters because, you no, know, ever since Jaws changed the face of summer releases, they're kind of here to stay. And in the case of Inception, you often get ones which are actually as smart and sophisticated as an art film. Yeah. They might be quite unusual in that respect, but you should never go in just saying, yeah. oh, this is going to be stupid. On the other hand, Pirates, of the, Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, um, I, which is the fourth film in the highly lucrative pirate series. Only the fourth. By, yeah, it seems like there have been so many. Uh, produced by hit maker Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, the first three films were helmed by uh, Gore Verbinski, who most recently made Rango and is a huge hack, frankly. This is, in new installment is directed by Rob Marshall, who's most famous for Chicago, but he also made things like Nine and Memoirs yeah. of a Geisha. Where do you stand on the first three Pirates films, just so we know where we are? Did not like them. Didn't you like the first one at all? No. Right. No. I mean, I, I normally quite like the sort of, you know, blockbuster adventure type things, but... No. no, well, in this case, you're in good company, because I didn't either. So, the story, for what there is of it, is that Jack Sparrow, played, of course, by Johnny Depp, is going on a quest for the Fountain of Youth. He becomes romantically entwined with a pirate called Angelica, who is played by Penelope Cruz, who worked with Rob Marshall on Nine, although she didn't get a very good hand in that, unfortunately. There's a line in Nine where she's playing Daniel Day-Lewis's lover, and he kind of, he's kind of in the process, I've got to make a film, I've got to make a film, and she says, right, if you're not going to pay attention to me, I'm just going to sit on this hotel bed with my legs open until you get back. It's like, yeah, very good writing, Rob. Thanks a lot yes. for just demeaning a great yeah. actress in that way. So you have him falling in love with Angelica. You also have him crossing swords with Blackbeard, who's played by Ian McShane. Um, and I like Ian McShane very much, and if you've not seen 
Coraline, the Henry Selleck film, in which he plays Hector Bobinski, the guy who trains the mice. Go and get that on DVD, because that's a very yeah. good children's film. So, let's be absolutely clear. The first Pirates film, which came out about eight years ago, it was too long, and it was a bit boring in places, but as empty entertainment, it did what it set out to do. And then you get the two sequels, which were, well, Dead Man's Chest was just rubbish, and At World's End was mind-numbingly bad. I actually was dragged to see the third one in cinemas and I fell asleep twice. <laughs> that good, yes. yes. And yes. no, I woke up and they were still in the same scene, so I don't think I missed much. So, the problem with all the Pirates films is that they, they are essentially a collection of bits that don't have any narrative thread. I mean, in the case of the first three, it was based on a film park ride, so in, if you know the way that roller coasters work, it says up, down, up, down, stop, and you get off at the end wondering what happened, but you know you've spent your money and you don't know. In this case, Rob Marshall has kind of got involved, and Rob Marshall, of course, comes from musicals, so he's kind of used to the idea of you choreograph this song and then this yeah. song and then this song, but you don't necessarily manage to link them together. And it is the same sort of thing. See, there's loads of sort of quests going on. There's, you know, characters meeting up and having three-way duels and Ian McShane chewing the scenery. And occasionally the sword will kind of point out the screen because it's in 3D. And in the end, it's not really a film. It's a kind of money-making tentpole that's sort of sitting in cinemas, taking up space where more interesting films could be showing. But it will be number one. Yeah, and that, I mean... With all of these things, you have to be very careful because you can't just say, well, the public is stupid, they'll pay anything. Because I don't think it, people are stupid. No. Not just, not just talking about you, of yes. course, but... Everybody to their own taste. Exactly. And, you know, you pays your money and takes your choices, but it, it's, it's not even worth getting that angry about because it's just another empty franchise money-making exercise. Okay. Yeah. Right, next... Win-win? Yes, and um, the more interesting stuff. Now, the new film by Thomas McCarthy, who is mo better known as an actor, but he made a couple of films called uh, The Visitor and The Station Agent, the latter of which is quite good. It stars um, Peter Dinklage, who's a very good sort of um, dwarf or midget actor, whichever term is more politically correct. Um, story is Paul Giamatti um, plays a disgruntled attorney who moonlights as a wrestling coach in the local high school. Uh, he becomes involved with a kid called Kyle, who turns out to be this really great athlete, and he thinks, okay, if I nurture this kid, we can sort of, we can turn around the school's losing streak, and maybe he can go on to represent, you know, the, the state and then the country. There's a common thread in all McCarthy's films about sort of outsiders coming into communities and in the process of settling in, they discover something deeper about themselves. I mean, there is a sort of underlying similarity with... Um, have you ever seen David Lynch's The Straight Story? No. No, it's about... which um, was the last ever performance by, by Richard Farnsworth. It's about a guy who... Um, is he can't very walk or see very well anymore but he discovers that his brother is dying um like three states over so he kind of hitches up a trailer to his old four-wheel drive lawnmower and drives across three states yeah. and he kind of meets it's a kind of life-affirming film it's very unusual for lynch because it's not sort of sort of twisted and dark and strange but it's actually quite sweet yeah and it's that same idea of you kind of you know where you're going and you've got a very clear intention but on the way you discover more about yourself and in a way which you no know, in other areas is slightly saccharine and sweet although the straight story isn't either of those it's got very good performances i mean paul giamatti has been a bit up and down recently but he does do sort of indie schlubs very well to put yeah. it one way and the characters feel genuine and it's one of those films where you might not be overwhelmed when you see it, but you might sort of remember it a lot more than other, in, as yeah. opposed to other films where you'll come out and think, oh, it's over, next. Yeah. It, you'll sort of be thinking about them for a bit more, and you feel like you, of, you're sort of moving with them. So. Yeah, so, sounds like one to go and watch. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Julia's Eyes. Yeah, um, new psychological horror thriller by Guillermo Morales, presented by Guillermo del Toro, so setting the bar very high. I mean, you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, haven't you? 
Yes, yes. Yeah, which yeah. is an extraordinary piece of work. Um, I mean, there was a sort of... When you say presented by, it's it's kind of he's using his name to give it heft and backing in the same yeah. way as he did with the orphanage. Um, so the story involves uh, a woman called uh, Julia, or it might be pronounced Julia because it's a Spanish film, uh, who's played by uh, Belen Raider, who was the lead uh, female role in the orphanage. She suffers from a degenerative condition which is causing her slowly to go blind. And she is kind of trying to resist going blind while turning up at this house and trying to solve the murder of her twin sister yeah. who suffered from the same condition. Um, every so often, you, you kind of reach a point in horror films, particularly from my point of view, where you kind of feel like, okay, I've seen it all, you know, this can't scare me anymore. And then, out of the blue, a film comes along where you think, actually, there is not life, not just in the genre, but the, this, this actually has something to say. I mean, I, I had the same, it's a bit like Let the Right One In, which kind of took very familiar elements because I know about a vampire story and so forth and completely yeah. reinvented it. I don't think this is going to be Let the Right One In, I should say straight off, but it is a proper horror film. It has a deeply chilling quality, not chilling in the sense of just people going, ah, and sort of yeah. that sort of thing, but actually getting under your skin and sort of affecting you in a way that you don't quite realise. And you know, it's a film about, you know, the bond between sort of siblings or twins, which has been explored in, well, things like Single White Female and The Shining to some extent. Um, you look at, it's about people, people's reliance on sight and how perception creates fear. You know, there's all sorts yeah. of things about imagining people in rooms that actually may not be there. I mean, there, blindness is quite a familiar device in horror. I mean, you can go back to things like the eye slicing sequence in Anshan Andalou, the, the Salvador Dali film. But even you no know, before film, you go back to things like King Lear and Oedipus, which are about people sort of tearing their eyes out. So yeah, yeah. They can, it's not a case that we can get away with everything now because a lot of the stuff was done about four hundred years ago. Really great performances. I think it is very well directed. You can see sort of Guillermo del Toro's footprint in various places in the design and the use of music, and it's definitely the film of the week. So, yeah. you know, and is it subtitled? Or? It is subtitled, um, and the Tyneside will be showing it in, like I say, the original Spanish language. So, yeah, go and see it. You're, right. in, you're in for a treat. So do, do the subtitles distract from, because presumably the horror bit's quite visual. Um, no, I, well, based upon the experience of Pan's Labyrinth, I'd say no, because I saw Pan's Labyrinth in the original language, and it's... It's much more to do with atmosphere than actually what's going on on screen, because a lot of that end of horror is, is about, well, not just implying what's there, yeah. but sort of you, you bond with a character so strongly that their view becomes the one that you take for granted. It's like Repulsion. You know, in Repulsion, you've only got the view of Catherine Deneuve, so you sort of have to trust her, and the thing yeah. that's really unnerving about Repulsion is the fact that actually she might be completely insane. <laughs> so you kind of, you get into a situation where you sympathise with her, and then you realise she's completely mad, and you get yeah. freaked out by it. So yeah, it's, if, along with Win Win, it's film of the week, because, you know, I've win-win will work for non-horror fans. Okay, and our final one this week then is Blitz. Yeah, a new film by Elliot Lester starring Jason Statham and produced by Lionsgate UK, which again gives you some sort of idea what you're going to get because Lionsgate have a reputation for sort of rather sleazy, you know, uh, run-down stuff, although they have released a couple of interesting films. Um, the story, it's a kind of very generic, again, that phrase, B-movie. Um, Statham plays a cop who is played with a gay colleague played by Paddy Considine, who's best known for his work with Shane Meadows. He's also in Submarine, though, um, so check that out. Um, he is hunting down a cop-killing serial killer who's played by an actor called Aidan Gillen. Um, the film drew some controversy in its development because of its central idea of a serial killer going around murdering policemen, and there was some concern about whether it was sort of too soon after Raoul Mote. Yeah. Not to put sort of too fine a point on it, but there were those sort of things wandering around it. In the end, though, I think those... 
those concerns are quite misplaced because it is quite a sort of straightforward, run-of-the-mill genre film in the sense, you know, Jason Statham doing what he does best, which is sort of running around with a gun, talking in a very edgy voice. <laughs> and, you know, there's good playful supporting performances. It's one of those yeah. films in which everyone kind of seems in on the act and they had a good fun making it. And regardless of how much you enjoy it, you can sort of... There's that sort of thing about it which is affectionate. It is nothing remarkable. It is, you know, like a lot of Jason Statham films, very sort of generic. But as a genre film, it's okay. So quite a strong clutch of new films this week. It's not bad. I mean, so after a few, particularly for the start of blockbuster season. I mean, obviously, yes. Pirates is going to take the most money out of those four, no matter what we say. Yeah. But if, uh, but no, it's nice to know that there are refreshing alternatives out there instead of just some stuff that got pushed to the bottom of the pile at Sundance. Right. So, Win-Win and Julia, or Julia, depending yes. on how you look at it, eyes, yeah, uh, well think, worth going to see. Yeah, the original title is Les Ojos de Julia, so, um, yeah, so Julia's Eyes is the film of the week, right, but Spanish I Spanish is better than mine. Well, that's, that's all I know. <laughs> so, yeah, Julia's Eyes is the film of the week, but Win-Win is sort of tied to that, because yeah. I understand most, a lot of people won't go and see a horror film, even if it's as good as this. Yeah, right, and um, other things out at the moment, Thor, Attack the Block, Hannah... Yep. And then Annick Playhouse this week, of course, The Eagle on Friday night, which I'm going to be at, and Submarine, which you're going to be at. Yeah, so it's a full week, and of course, if you are willing to sort of stay up for part or all of the night, the Tyneside Cinema's 75 hours of film starts at 10 o'clock. I think the first screening, which is Rocky Horror, is sold out, but you can still get tickets for most of the others. And if you've caught up here by your sleep, on your sleep by next Saturday, we'll see you again. Yeah, and we'll do John Carpenter's Halloween, which, which will be great be fun. Great. Right, coming up uh, 12 till 5 this afternoon, We've got Jerry G, and then, of course, it's uh, Laura Wilkinson on between five and seven. Do hope you've enjoyed the programme. Good luck to Annick Town this afternoon. Heaton Stannington, 2.30 St James's Park. They must win to lift the Northern Alliance. And then tonight, Annick Town reserves against Bedlington Terriers reserves, seven o'clock, also St James's Park. Big day for Annick Town. Good luck to all of them. And I'm off to think about D. Hepburn again, but Claire Grogan was pretty good. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.